give Brent the words to say that you have placed on his heart, Lord. We, we pray for Pastor David and Pastor Chad over in La Pine, too, Lord, that you would bless them. And so, Lord, thank you that we have this opportunity to dive into your word, and we just ask that you will open our eyes to see what it means for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. All right, the kids can be excused to go to the Sunday school if they would like to, and the rest of you can turn to Matthew chapter 1. So we're starting a a new book of the Bible. We don't have a graphic because we just didn't come up with one yet, so we just get a look at that and pretend like it says Matthew and it'll all be fine. You know, a lot of times when you're, when you're getting ready to do a new study, you go into a very long introduction, and especially if you're doing like a home Bible study, it's fun to do introductions. I'm not going to do much of an introduction, so if you want to, go dig in for yourself. You'll be blessed. It's fun to, to kind of look into these books and do intros, but I'm just going to say this is believed to have been written about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection by one of the 12 apostles. Anybody want to guess which one? Matthew. Good job. Seeing, making sure you're awake. It's called a gospel because it records the good news about our Savior Jesus. And, I, you know, if you don't regularly read the gospels, I would encourage you to do so. There's four of them, right? You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, the reason that I love to be in the gospels and to read them is that it's that up close and personal look at our Savior. You get to remember who he was, what he was like, what he said, what he did, what he accomplished, all of these things, how he interacted with people. And I love, I love seeing that because if if you want to grow in the love and the knowledge of your Savior, reading the Gospels is a great way to do that. So if you're not regularly reading them and in them, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, as I said, four different Gospels, four different authors. Well, one author, really, it's, you know, if you're under, but four men that wrote this. The neat thing about that is that each of these guys was very different. And so they wrote from their unique vantage point how they interacted with Jesus, how they kind of saw things, and they, they emphasized different things. So for instance, John which is my favorite gospel. I don't mind saying that. I like Matthew, but John's just, for me, it's, it's, I don't know. I think John and I would have gotten along pretty good. We would have cried together. I think that's probably why I like it so much. <laughs> but John presents Jesus as the son of God. Luke presents Jesus as the son of man. Mark presents him as the suffering servant. And Matthew presents Jesus as the sovereign king. And in fact, he opens his book with a royal lineage of all those who led to the birth of King Jesus. It starts out with these words. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But that word genealogy is actually the Greek word Genesis. And that, that wouldn't have been lost on the readers, but we don't see that. But if you, it's just such a cool thing to think about. The Old Testament starts with a Genesis story, and the New Testament also starts with a Genesis story. This is the creation of the Savior, the, the birth of the Savior, not the creation because Jesus wasn't created, but the birth of the Savior. And so we have this wonderful story of a promised king who would save God's people from their sins. And this details the path of how, you know, God basically got us to Jesus, this story that culminates with his son. Genealogies can seem relatively mundane. I don't know how many of you guys, when you come across a genealogy in the Bible, just go, oh boy, it's a genealogy. Um, sometimes you just start to, you know, kind of nod off a little bit as you're reading them and, and they don't seem like they're there's much interesting that's going on there, but they are significant. They're important, and they have, you know, there's a reason to actually dig into them and to learn from them, and I hope to bring some of that out this morning as we go through it. You know, in recent years, it's been really kind of popular to get those home DNA kits where you, you know, ancestry kind of kits where you, you can find out where you came from and look at your family tree and learn stuff about you. Kind of interesting. My sister did one of those, and and I learned, you know, a few things. I mean, I know I'm Basque because I just, you know, my mom was 
full Basque, and so I'm half Basque. I know that sounds like a weird thing, but <laughs> half baked, half, I don't know. Uh, anyway, my mom's maiden name was Olachea, so that's the Basque name. Maxwell is the Scottish name. That's, you know, so I, I knew I had those two things, but then I found out there were other things going on, and, and it, was, it was fascinating. We get through this lineage kind of a glimpse at Jesus' family tree. You know, if, if he were to purchase one of those kits and see the results, what would he have discovered? Well, as we go through this list, you'll begin to see kind of an underlying issue that exists here. And, and uh, many of the names, they'll be familiar to us. They're kind of the usual suspects of the Old Testament. But it also contains some names that you would not expect. And so as we read through this, see if you can kind of talk about what I'm, what I'm referring to. Uh, this is kind of long, and there's a lot of names here, so we're going to get through this. So Matthew chapter 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. All right, that's the first section. So I just want to pause for breath. I was going to take a drink of water, but I didn't grab one, so I can't do that. Okay, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah is Bathsheba. It's not, she's not named, but that's who the wife is. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jump in Jehoshaphat. There you go. That's where it comes from, right there. Right? And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. If you're a studier of the Old Testament, it's that Ahaz, the, the horrible king. And then Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Again, that Manasseh, terrible, terrible king. And Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. We love Josiah. Josiah is a great name in, in, the, in, in the book, and he's a great king. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's the second section. We're in the, the last, uh, here we go. And after the deportion, deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. So the, we're getting into the weird names now. So, you know, any, any expecting moms that are looking for some inspiration, you've got Shealtiel, who is the father of Zerubbabel. Would you ever get tired of saying that? Like, Zerubbabel, it's time for dinner. It's, just, it's, it's a good name. I'm just consider it. Think about it. That's all I'm saying. Zerubbabel, the father of Ebued, and Ebued, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Iliud, and Iliud, the father of Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So that is Jesus' family tree. Did you notice the underlying issue that I was referring to? This is not a great list, right? And you thought your family tree was messed up. It's like this genealogy is kind of a mess, not in terms of accuracy, but in terms of occupancy, so the list is correct, but it's full of incorrect people. That's what I'm talking about. All right. So yeah, it's, it's a correct list, but it's full of incorrect people. And in fact, I would argue that if the Bible was a book that was written or made up by men, 
they would have cleaned this thing up to make it look way more respectable than it does. And Matthew doesn't even try to do this. And I love this. The Bible has nothing to hide. God has nothing to hide. He puts everything out in the open, even the scandalous stuff. If you were at all concerned with keeping up appearances, you would bury most of the names on this list. You just would. For instance, Rahab the prostitute would not make this list. There's no way you would put her name on there. I mean, you could know, go with somebody. It's funny. I just, I love the moniker. I wonder how long that stuck. Like, oh, who's coming over? Rahab? Oh, Rahab the prostitute? It's like, call her something else. But it's funny. Anyway, sorry. Hopefully that didn't stick. But, but she's one of those people that if you were in, you know, in a congressional hearing and that name came up, you'd be like, you know, I can neither confirm nor deny her, you know, any knowledge of her existence. You wouldn't put her name on the list. You wouldn't put it out there. But there it is right out in the open for everyone to see. And this reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I don't know if you've ever really read that chapter and thought about it. It's not really a self-esteem building chapter, I would say that, but it explains how God picks his team. And I don't know if you guys have ever been in that, the old schoolyard pick where you picked your team. You know, who did you pick? You would go after like, I want him because he's the fastest. I want her because she's the smartest. You know, that guy's really, really good looking. Whatever it is, you would always try to pull in the best of the best. That's how we pick our team. That's not how God picks his team. Instead, if we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says God picks the foolish. He picks the weak. He picks the low and despised. That's who he picks. Why is that? Why fill a list with people like that? And the reason is because it highlights how amazing God is and not how amazing man is. Men making up this genealogy would not have done that. They would have had a really good looking list. Not so here. So this genealogy tells the story about a faithful God who keeps his promises and fulfills his plan of redemption in a way that we would never have imagined or concocted on our own. We wouldn't have done it this way. God uses the most unlikely, most incapable, and even situations that are most impossible to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. For example, the genealogy begins and ends with an impossible birth. So you have Abraham's wife, Sarah, who is so old you know, way too old to, to have a baby. It said that her womb was dead and God does the impossible. And then you have Mary who was way too virginy. That's, that's a good word. Use that to become pregnant. And yet she did because God can do the impossible. See, that's, these are what, the, you know, these are the bookends of the story even. And I should also point out that this is not an exhaustive list. All the names aren't in here. Uh, Matthew kind of like handpicked the names that are on here, which makes it even more incredible. You, he, had, he had choices here. He could have put different names in there. These are the ones he went with. So if you noticed, I kind of, as I read it, the list is made up of three distinct sections in time. And so it says, it explains it in verse 17, um, three groupings of 14 generations. So it says, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So it's, it doesn't include everybody, just, just kind of these sections and some names from each section. The number 14 in the Bible often represents completion or perfection, and it can also represent deliverance. And so, you know, you can study that out. It's interesting to look at, but that's, you know, groups of 14. There's a couple of other things that are interesting about this genealogy that are necessary to point out. The first one is that it gives us Jesus's necessary pedigree. So the Jewish people knew that their Messiah had specific criteria that had to be met. So he had to come from the tribe of Judah 
and from the house of David. And that's why Matthew starts out the list by saying, you know, Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. God made covenants with both of them as well that had to be promises that had to be fulfilled. And Jesus is the fulfillment of those covenants and promises. The second thing we see in this genealogy, if you're a student of the Bible, you'll know that this genealogy is different than the one that's in the book of Luke. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but if you read them, they're not the same. And so, you know, you would have to ask the question, why is that? Is that, is it because the Jews were just lousy at keeping records? Not at all. They were actually kind of psycho about it. They would, they were really meticulous about keeping records and, and historical, you know, history, um, transcribing Jewish history. So no, that's not the answer. There are a couple of good theories as to why these two genealogies are different. Both of them, the ones that I like the best anyway, um, both of them arrive at the same conclusion that one genealogy records Jesus's legal right to the throne and one the biological right to the throne. And so if, if you, they would say that one is Joseph's and one is Mary's. And that's a possibility. There's another um, possibility where you had these two brothers where, um, it, like if you look at the genealogies, Luke starts with Adam and Matthew starts with Abraham and they, they go along the same for a while and then they break off. Well, there was two brothers that are in there that one had potentially died and his brother then would have come and married his wife and then had kids with her. That was what the Jews did to carry on the, the namesake. So you, again, you have the same idea where the legal you know, right to the throne goes this way, the biological right goes that way, but it's the same basic idea. But the point is this, no matter how you slice it, guess who has the right to sit on the throne? Jesus does, and, and that's the point. So um, those are just a couple of reasons why a big list of names like this in the Bible is important, but wait, there's more. So one of the things we see from this list, and it's important, is that God's plan of redemption is right on time. Uh, the first mention of the good news, does anybody know where the first mention is found? Genesis chapter 3, right? Right after the fall, we have the first mention of the good news. The, the theological term, if you want to impress your neighbors, is the proto-evangelium, right? And, and it's found in Genesis 3.15, where it says that the offspring of the woman would be struck by the serpent, referring to the crucifixion, but that the one born of the woman would crush the serpent's head, referring to the resurrection. So God's plan was in place for a really, really long time. In fact, if, you, if you're a good student of the Bible, you know that it was Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So it, it even goes beyond that. But it's just taken a, a lot of time, thousands of years for it to, to unfold. Some might even say that God seems rather slow in keeping his promises. Right? We see that in the New Testament, right? When people talk about that regarding the second coming, it sure seems like God is slow in keeping his promises. Where's this promised second coming? Well, they were probably saying the same thing. Where's this promised Messiah? This has taken a really long time. And, and we, can, we can get disillusioned at times because we don't see God's plan unfolding the way we, we think it should, or it's just taking too long. But that doesn't mean it's not happening. I love Galatians 4.4. It tells us this. When the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time according to God's calendar, not ours. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. God's timetable is perfect. And we can trust that in the fullness of time, Jesus will return, but it will happen according to God's timetable, not ours. I'd like him to come back today. I've, made, I've, I've actually just, you know, I've asked God, if, you know, if it's not too much trouble, if Jesus can come back today, that would work out well with my schedule. I, I like that idea, but it's not happening. I mean, it could, but so far as I've asked, 
You know, he's, he's holding off. But I want you to just look at how perfect Jesus' first coming turned out. It could not have gone any better or accomplished any more than it did. And I would just ask, will you trust God with his second coming too? Trust that it will happen at the right time when it's supposed to. I love that God says he's waiting for the last one to believe. You know, he's waiting for the, for the fullness of, of the elect to come in. That all those that will believe, he's not going to leave any men behind. Any, no, or no man left behind, women too. But that idea that he's, he's going to wait till it's time. And we can take comfort in that. God is always doing more than we're able to see. And he's always using people that don't make any sense to do it, which I also love. I mean, look at all the links in this chain that lead to Jesus. It's a crazy list. And most of these people probably had no idea what they were involved in, the hugeness of what God was doing in and through their lives, how significant their lives would be. Their lives would end up magnifying Jesus, whether they wanted it to or not. And I like that too. You think Manasseh, this guy was a wingnut. I mean, the guy wasn't a good king at all. He was terrible. I don't think he wanted to glorify God at all. And here's his name in this list. And it reminds me of even, you know, Jesus saying, you know, the rocks would cry out. If, if, if you guys won't, I, he will be glorified. And it doesn't matter whether you want to or not, it will happen. So it's kind of cool to think about all these people that played a part in Jesus coming to us. And now we get to play a part in others coming to Jesus. So so that, that chain kind of led to Jesus, and now it's kind of led to us, and then we get to continue those links to, to whoever we, we can you know, reach with the gospel. So hopefully we can connect people to Christ in this way and continue to. And I love that he can use anyone to do this. A lot of the people on this list are not the links we would expect at all. There's a bunch of names that I don't even know if I pronounced right. I've just learned if you, if you say them with confidence, most people don't know. So, so that's the key to that. When you read through those, you guys are going, well, he really knows all these names. Probably not. But just be confident. Nobody will know. I'm just kidding. I tried. But anyway, I don't know anything about some of these guys. And if I were to, you know, you could try to search it out and figure it out. There's probably some interesting things. But God knows who they are. God knows their names. And he used them. And he knows your name. And he can use you as well. And I hope you believe that. Most of us don't think we have much to offer. When I talk to most Christians, they're like, I don't, know what to, I don't have much to offer. It reminds me of a boy that showed up to a hillside one day with a lunch. You know, what did he have to offer? Not much. And it just reminds us that it's not about what we can do. It's what Jesus can do with us. So he can take that little boy's sack lunch and feed 5,000 people. That's pretty cool. That that, can you imagine that boy going home that day? And, hey, mom and dad, guess what happened today? <laughs> Probably got in trouble. <laughs> it's like, what have we told you? I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm projecting. Strike that from the record. <laughs> Not substantiated. But, but God's plan of redemption was on track, and it's still on track. And we can trust in that. And we get to be a part of it. That's crazy to think about, but we get to be a part of it. So that's a privilege to consider. Another important thing we can learn from this list is that Jesus is willing to be associated with embarrassing people, namely sinners. You know, I can imagine like if Jesus were to get one of those, those Ancestry.com kits and it comes in the mail and he opens it up and he starts looking through it. It's like, I'm going to take this out in the backyard and burn it before anybody sees the results. It's like, this is not a good list. It's, it's a corrupt bloodline and an embarrassing group of people to be associated with. But the truth is that any one of us would bring shame and embarrassment to this list. Um, I mean, you know, shockingly, if you can imagine this, as I'm preparing for this, I imagine my name being on that list and I'm sitting in front of my computer just weeping, thinking my name doesn't belong on a list like that. The shame that I would bring to that list, the embarrassment that I would bring to that list. 
And yet, my name's on the, it, it's still in the family tree. You know, have you ever thought about that? I mean, that got up to Jesus. Now I'm in this line. I mean, it's like my name is in that thing. It just doesn't make sense. If you're a Christian, you're part of his family tree. You've been adopted as sons and daughters. Talk about royal ancestry. Isn't that just amazing to think about? I know people that say, like Pastor David one time said that they're related to Jesse James. And it's like, that's pretty cool. You know, my, my great uncle founded Prairie Bible Institute in Canada. You know, that's pretty cool. But you know what? I got something better than that. Can you imagine that? Oh, who are you related to? Oh, Jesus adopted me. Just that. I'm in his line. And what do you got? You know, Jesse James, you know, <laughs> that's not so. So what? You know, I'm, I'm so glad that this list wasn't whitewashed, wasn't cleaned up because I needed to see some of the names on this list. I needed to, because it gives me hope when I see this. Um, even the people that we think of as heroes had some pretty gnarly stuff going on. I don't know if you've, I used to read my Bible that way. I used to try to, you know, I read it like, oh, these are all heroes. These are all men to be admired. And there's men to be admired. Don't misunderstand. But I mean, it's like, these guys were sinners. Um, Abraham is the top of the list there. He wasn't always a great husband. There were times when he put his wife in incredibly dangerous situations to save his own skin. David, I mean, I love David because it's like, man, thank you that the Bible includes David and his schizophrenic Psalms. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't mean that. I don't think he was really schizophrenic, but he, he's, he's like me. He was guilty at best of adultery and at worst of forcing himself on Bathsheba. He, he got her pregnant and then to cover it up, he had her husband murdered. He's on that list. Judah hired a prostitute on a business trip who just happened to be his daughter-in-law who had been widowed dressed up disguised. He didn't know it was her. And that's where Perez and Zerah came from. So, and we're just in verse two right now. That's, so that's what I'm saying. This is a messed up list. And this list literally has something for everyone. It includes Jews and Gentiles, men and women, the well-known and the unknown, the savory and the unsavory. You've got minorities, you've got immigrants, you've got misfits, you've got outcasts. You even have horrible, evil guys like Rehoboam, Ahaz and Manasseh. I mentioned these guys. They were all kings that were on the the bad list of kings. Horrible people. It includes a cross-section of everyone in humanity that Jesus came to save. And this list is so precious to me because it, it tells me that if Jesus is not too embarrassed to associate himself with them, then he's not too embarrassed to associate himself with me. No matter who is on this list, they all have one thing in common. They all are sinners in need of a Savior. And the good news is that these are the kinds of people that Jesus came for. And that's why we can celebrate a chapter full of these names in Hebrews 11. Have you ever thought about that? It's it's the Hall of Faith. Some of the same names that are in this genealogy are in Hebrews 11. Rahab, she's there. (laughs) Again, it just says Rahab, I think, but, you know, she's there. And, and, and it's like, well, how can, we, how can we celebrate a group of sinners and a group of people that, you know, and, and it's bragging about their faith. By faith, they did this, and by faith, they did that. Well, because we see them through the lens of the gospel. That's how. The gospel that transforms sinners into saints and transforms faithless people into faithful people. And so the things that these people did or didn't do no longer defines them, but Jesus does. And, if, and that's true for you and me if we are in Christ. 
I, I love this. Jesus is not embarrassed to be associated with me because he took my sin and my shame upon himself and he buried it. So I went down into death with Jesus, buried. And then I was raised to new life, a new creation by Jesus where he's given me his righteousness, taken my sin, given me his righteousness. And now that's who I am. That's my identity now. And that's true for anyone who places their faith in him for salvation. I love that everyone who came before the cross and everyone who came after the cross, the same thing saved them. So, so Jesus' work of bringing righteousness to sinners washes backwards over that list and it washes forward over us. The same work saves. So um, that's one thing we can learn from the genealogy. Another one is that um, Jesus' humble condescension is our pattern to follow. So we know who Jesus is. Jesus is eternally part of the Godhead. He, he, he's eternally existed as God. But he left his glorious estate and became human so that he could go to the cross. So we learn from a list like this that if Jesus was willing to associate with sinners like the people on this list, we should too. And if Jesus was willing to humble himself and take a lower station than he deserved, we should too. I don't know if you think about that, but think about who Jesus was and then think about what he did. And, and one of the greatest things we, you know, the stories in the Bible is, is when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. It's, it's an incredible thing to think about. What a humiliating task. Feet are gross. And they were grosser then probably than today because they didn't, you know, have, well, anyway. They're gross. I think we can all agree on that. And Jesus would bend down, the, the God of the universe who made us would, would, would condescend to wash our feet. That's our example. That's our leader to follow. I was joking that uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was snow out here and Bill pulled up and said, what, why are you out here doing this? Because I was shoveling the snow. You know, don't you have people for this? And I thought, as I was studying, I thought, if I ever get to the point where it's like, hey, hey people, my people are supposed to, you know, where's my people that are supposed to do this for me? Like the pastor is the biggest servant in the church as far as I'm concerned. And if I ever get too big for my britches to where I won't empty a garbage can or or pick up garbage in the yard, or shovel the driveway. I'm not following my leader anymore, and somebody should rebuke me for that. Not, you know, it's just, anyway. Sorry, I'm off notes here. If Jesus was willing to set himself aside for others, he's our example to follow. And so, really, Christians should be the most kind, the most loving, the most selfless, the most humble people that exist. Jesus said that people would know that we're actually his followers, that we're with him if we love this way. And so that's what I hope we're like as, as Christians. And, and I hope that we're like that as Christians at the door, that anybody in the community that comes in contact with us and sees us as a church interacting with each other, that their heads would kind of cock to the side and they'd be like, this is different. You know, what's, the, what's going on here? And then that they would be able to connect the dots to Jesus as the only, re you know, it's like, oh, the only explanation for something like this going on is Jesus is real and that he's part of this group. That's, that's the idea. And I hope that's, you know, exactly what happens. I hope that's um, what people see every time they come around us. Okay, so far Matthew has shown us the historical path that led to Jesus, and now he's going to show us the means that God used to get Jesus to us. So in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, that means like as husband and wife came together, so... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So it was very common in this time to have marriages that were prearranged by the fathers. Even when the, the kids were extremely little, they would, they would make these arrangements. Uh, the betrothal period is when this became ratified. And so um, 
it would precede the wedding ceremony, usually by about a period of a year. But it wasn't like our engagements where, you know, if you're engaged to someone, you decide you don't want to marry them, you can just call the whole thing off and it, it's done. This was something, once you were betrothed, you had to get a divorce to undo it. So it was like you were husband and wife, but you weren't living together or sleeping together, those kinds of things. But you were, you know, you had to get a divorce to get out of it. So that was the situation. And, and basically, um, they were betrothed and she's pregnant. And Joseph knows that he didn't do that. So I want you just to try to imagine what it would have been like for them at this time. Mary was only a teenager at this time, probably maybe 15, which was normal. That was normal in their culture for people to get married young like this. Um, but can you imagine how strange and scary this would have been for her? She'd been preparing her entire life to be married to Joseph, looking forward to it. That would be her future. That would be her husband. That would be her security, her provision, all these things. And now she stands to lose everything. This would have been terrifying. Luke records the interaction for us in, in his um, gospel in chapter 1, verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be, will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. So this means that God would supernaturally cause Mary to become pregnant, which is nothing to God at all because he's able to create everything from nothing, right? We see that in the, in the creation account. Uh, everything was um, basically, this is even reminiscent of that where you've got the Holy Spirit like hovering over the, the void, you know, there's nothing going on here and then God spoke and life came into existence. It's the same basic thing here. Let there be life, and there was life. So the virgin birth is something that, um, I don't know, I, think, I, think, I don't think Christians think about this a lot as far as why this is important. And I remember there was, a, there was a big movement, I don't know if you remember the emergent church movement that was about, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. There was this pretty popular movement. Now we're calling it deconstruction. It's the same idea of where people just want to question everything and, and say, is this a big deal? Is the virgin birth really that important? I remember they, they would say, like, if we just take this brick out of the wall, does it really matter? Does it really damage the wall just to take this one brick out? Well, let's look. Let's see how important this is. First thing we see about the virgin birth is it fulfills biblical prophecy. So in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before this happened, said it would happen. So it's important in that regard. It said that if you look at verse 22, it says all this, this is back in Matthew chapter one, sorry. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It was also predicted in what I talked about in Genesis 3.15, where the seed singular of the woman would, would um, become the savior. So the virgin birth is important because of those things. It's also important because it, it means that Jesus is literally the son of God and the son of man. Okay, it gives us the two natures of Jesus. 
He's fully God, like his father, and he's fully human, like his mother. And again, the, the theological term for this is the hypostatic union of Christ. It's really important because it means that he was really God and that he was really like us. So when you think about it, for him to be our high priest, he needs to know what it's like to live in one of these things. He needs to know what it's like to, to be tempted, to struggle, to weep, to get tired. That's, that's who our high priest is. He had to be fully man, but he also had to be fully God because a man going to the cross and dying for sins, that doesn't pay for the sins of the whole world. But God going to the cross, God himself going to the cross, suffering and dying for sin, that, that will do the job for sure. So this is important. But, but maybe the most important reason the virgin birth matters so much is because without it, Jesus would not be without sin. Romans 5.12 tells us that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and that death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all of sin. So the sin nature is passed down to us from Adam, but Adam did not represent Jesus as his federal head. God the Father did. And this means that Jesus was born without the original sin that is passed down to all of us. And the opposite of this happens, by the way, when we become Christians. So, you know, we had the sin passed. Now we have the righteousness of Jesus passed on to us. And so, so it's, it's a pretty good little transaction if you're a believer, right? So basically it just means this, the sin nature is inherited from Adam, but the redeemed nature is inherited from Christ. So the question again is, is this an important brick in the wall? Do, Do we, do we lose anything important if we take it out? Yeah. What do we lose? Jesus. We lose a sinless savior. We lose our salvation. It's a pretty important brick. It's like, stop messing with that brick, people. I really need this brick in the wall or I'm doomed. So yeah, it's important. It's a big deal. Okay. So we, we, we saw kind of how God graciously made sure that Mary was in the loop and comforted when she received this news that she would become pregnant and conceive a son. But, but what about poor Joseph? I want to take a minute just to, to camp on, on him. This would have been unbelievable, just unbelievably hard. Um, I can just imagine Mary coming up to him and saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pregnant. And he's going to say, well, you were unfaithful to me. No, no, wait a second. That's not what happened. Uh, God did this. I mean, you can just imagine you expect me to believe that you weren't unfaithful, but that God made you pregnant because that, you know, that, that happens all the time. So sure, we'll go. I mean, there's, there's no way Joseph would have been okay with this. And in fact, it's understandable that he was ready to walk when he heard this. And so in verse 19, it says, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man, that means he wanted to please God and follow the law and also unwilling to put her to shame. That means he loved her and he cared about what happened. It says he resolved to divorce her quietly. So he was going to just say, no, this is, this is done. But fortunately, it says, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So as hard as all of this would have been for both Mary and Joseph, I bet you all that went away pretty quickly when they realized what God was using them for. Can you imagine the privilege of being, you know, the mother of Jesus and then the stepdad of Jesus? Um, Amazing. Verse 22 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, 
but knew her not, which means they waited like they were supposed to until they got married. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. So Mary got to bring the Savior into the world. Joseph obeyed God and, and got to become Jesus' earthly dad. And as his legal dad, it means that Jesus, the son of David, had the right to sit on that throne. So, you know, very important that, that we get to, you know, that we understand why this lineage is here and why it, you know, why it matters so much. It does. And, and to know that God did all of this for undeserving sinners is something that should just blow our minds. And I love that if you look at the titles that are given to Jesus in this section, he's called Christ, he's called Emmanuel, and he's called Jesus, that what they actually named him. Christ or Messiah means anointed or chosen one. Emmanuel means God with us, the idea that he came to us because we couldn't get to him. And Jesus means the Lord saves. So even in these names that are given, it preaches the gospel. We have the chosen one of God who came to us to save us from our sins. That's amazing. This is who God has given us in his son. So thank God for including us in his plan of redemption and his future plan of restoration. Uh, Father, we're just in awe of who you are and the way you do work all things according to your will and, and the fact that your plan is being accomplished. Even when we don't see it or understand it, uh, we are grateful that, that we can count on it. We can count on you. We, we're thankful that you've included us in the links that are in this chain of Jesus's family line. If we're a Christian today, we're adopted sons and daughters and part of your family. And we can never thank you enough for that. We pray, Lord, that we would be people that please you, that worship you, that, that honor you and that continue to, to take that message of, of a Savior um, to the people in the world around us that need to hear it. And we ask that in his name. Amen.